0: Welcome to the $7 Trillion Ideas to Save the World podcast. I'm your host, Nika Moini. I'm a master's in international affairs student in international economic policy with a focus on development financing at Carleton University. I'm also a community leader, advocate of youth entrepreneurship, and author of Careers in International Relations, Generation Z's Guide to Global Citizenship. You may have found this podcast through your interest in development finance, or just ideas to make the world a better place. Either way, there's a lot to learn, so let's get right into it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the $7 Trillion Ideas to Save the World podcast. Today, we have an exciting guest with us, Viola Llewellyn from Ovamba, which is a fintech company empowering um, African entrepreneurs. So thank you so much for being here. A great pleasure. Good morning, Nika. Good morning. So let's get started by just telling us a little bit more about yourself and what you do. Thank you. Um, my
1: name is Mayola Llewellyn, and I'm really glad because a lot of people have interesting ways of saying my name. And I'm the co-founder and president of Avamba Solutions Inc., which is a fintech platform founded by myself and Marvin Cole in 2013. And the goal when we started was to find a way to invest in africa and we used a lot of language that i've gotten a little bit uncomfortable with today things like doing stuff in africa which is very vague and referring to the continent as just this huge amorphous landmass but as we started trying to find ways in which to invest in the in the continent we began to realize that the problem was a lot bigger than we thought The goal has always been to help businesses to grow.
0: Okay, interesting. And how did you first get started with this fintech
1: space in Africa? Purely by accident. My business partner, Marvin Cole, was introduced to me about eight years ago. And at that time, we were both doing different things in terms of business development. He was focused on Africa. He's originally from Jamaica. So it's quite telling that very often solutions, ideas, and the impetus comes from outside. And we got started by trying to help those uh, Africans who are remitting capital to their family and friends, thinking that we could corral all of that money and direct it into specific neighborhoods. But this is not very scalable, at least at that time it was not. I believe there are people who are succeeding at this now. I had not been back to Cameroon in 24 years, which is where my parents are from. I was born and raised in the UK and I had zero interest in the African continent because I felt that the challenges were just so prohibitive and I really did not know what I was doing. So I went and I took a trip to go visit my parents. They often would come to visit me and I was very surprised to find that things I had left when I was 16 either had not changed or had changed for in ways that I no longer related to. And I felt this means that there is an opportunity to create impact, not necessarily change, but definitely impact. So we got back and started creating and looking at different ways to digitize platforms, looking at ways in which to get money into the continent, looking at ways to make investment and be profitable. And in 2013, we started Avamba. 2014, we had already raised a good amount of money from friends and family. And Jumped onto the bandwagon of here we go with not much uh, verified information because, as you can imagine, Africa at, at that time and even now, not a lot of data to support things that we want to do. But working with microfinances taught us that that's not the way to go. Microfinances keep businesses small, that's our philosophy. Microfinances are very heavily regulated by a central bank that has zero idea what businesses really need businesses need to grow and that's not always not always about money
0: right and so through that what have you learned that is what these people need what do you what do you see is missing right now in terms of actually leveraging and helping the middle class
1: i feel that um addressing individuals in their cultural reality is what has been missing, and this is where we have succeeded. We created a natural language chatbot when we partnered with Microsoft, and it is something that continues to grow as we add more and more languages. The continent has 2,000 distinct languages. Many individuals are from the informal sector. The informal sector does not always walk into a bank to fill out an application form for money, yet they drive I would say almost 30 to 40% of GDP, the informal sector has a lot of women in it. They're considered informal because they are not um, classically trained or they don't meet the formation statistics or designs of what we consider to be uh, well-run corporations, but they are successful. Some do pay taxes, some don't but they can't go in and fill out an application form for something they don't fully understand because they're not MBA students. But if you speak to them in their own languages, these are expressive, brilliant, ambitious people who the demographic charts that people use, they just don't fit into it. So Avamba allows people to do business in their own language. This gives them access. If banks are smart enough to partner with us and some banks just don't get it, they will realize that avamba understands that businesses don't need just money they also need the ability to store goods so when you get on our mobile app or you apply and we say to you you're growing but you're stifled and you're not able to manage your cash flow so we're going to help you manage cash flow we're going to buy more goods for you than you're used to buying on your own and we're going to import it and pay for that and we're going to store things in additional warehouse space, similar to the way that Airbnb allows you to stay in someone else's house for just the amount of time you need to be there. And you can buy these goods back from us over a period of time that matches the activity of your retail customers or your wholesale customers. Now we have the ability to buy goods for customers when they need them. In the past, what would happen is the customers would go to the bank or the microfinance institution and maybe wait two weeks for a decision. In the meantime, your goods are either sitting in the port or you're waiting to be able to buy those goods from an overseas supplier. So we're solving the problem of the timing, the space requirements, or the type of goods a customer wants to buy. We've got some really big customers in Douala, for example, who um, at the beginning of the year, they sell school books. A few months later, they're selling candles for Ramadan. After that, they're selling blankets. And then after that, they're selling maybe goods for Christmas. A bank is going to look at that and say, this person is unstable. No, they're not. They're responding to demand in a way that makes sense for them. And then with the customers who we have in our now ever-exploding exportation for commodities, they're growing cocoa in places where you can't get a truck to them, so they can't get their goods out in time, and they miss all of the executional requirements of their contracts to sell cocoa on large contracts. We go in and we say, here's the truck. We're going to buy it from you now. We're taking possession of the goods now. And we're going to make sure that you get paid early. These are the little things that make all the difference in the world.
0: Mm -hmm. And why do you think the banks have been overlooking all of these little things? Why do you think the microfinance institutions haven't been able to address these things?
1: because they don't actually understand how to measure risk they are way too risk averse to be that exotic quote unquote they the central bank does not allow will, will set treasury limits on them so when we come in and say we're going to to provide capital up to half a million euro microfinances can't do that much money There's way too much risk involved, plus the heavy nature of their decisioning, which does not involve uh, machine learning or artificial intelligence or any of the things that we have where we gather so many more data points, means that they can only stick to what they know. Here's a classic example. You walk down the street in many parts of Francophone Africa, and they'll tell you that our lending rates are 2% per month. Based on what? Well, that's what the market rate is. If you ask them who do you not lend to one of the first people they told us was oh we can't lend to women who are running pharmacies because they're scientists they're not business owners or you go into a very large bank and you'll and they'll say well we try not to lend to uh these types of businesses who don't meet our commercial threshold because they are uh, multi-banked and we don't have any real insight into how their businesses really work but they don't actually have the ability or the cost metrics in order to measure them. They'll say it's just too expensive to service those kinds of businesses. They want large, large companies so that they can do things like um, put a, a treasury block on their account. So if you go in and say, I want to borrow a few million, they'll say, well, you need to have a few million in your bank account that we can block in case you don't pay us. Well, then why are we coming to you? And that's how banks on the continent tend to work
0: right right so they're really just not understanding the situations of the people there essentially and they're kind of sticking to their old thought patterns around how banking should work
1: exactly and it's a very antiquated way of dealing with banking so this is why we say banks are not concerned with growth and building wealth they're concerned with deposit taking and lending and that's not enough
0: Mm-hmm. So we were talking a little bit earlier about this idea of helping people build wealth and not, not, just, not just helping them, but actually, actually giving them the resources to do that and, and actually caring about them being able to build and gain wealth. So can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yes, indeed. And it all starts with the ideas around um, managing cash flow and understanding culture. Different ethnic groups have different responses to money and repayability. The historic legacy of, let's say, families who have consistently dealt with farming versus those who have uh, built their lives around um, market and uh, selling, buying and selling goods, have brought about different ways in which they treat money. Even in the Western world, Um, the livelihoods of, let's say, somebody in Crete or Greece may differ a little bit from somebody in Hamburg or a family that grew up in rural Tennessee versus somebody on the, the city streets of Ottawa. These are different influences that many individuals haven't taken into account for how different African groups respond to capital or to growth. I know that in my own family, my grandfather, um, Andreas Apia, was a preacher and a cocoa farmer and a healer in Kumba, Southwest Cameroon. His value systems around wealth are rooted in education and formal employment with farming on the side. The idea that he would gamble, quote unquote, on uh, the stock exchange, would be complete anathema to him. And there are many individuals whose value systems are not built around that kind of wealth development. You take somebody from, let's say, the Yoruba tribe in Nigeria. They also are education forward, but when I speak to some of the younger generation today, I see a very high growth pattern in those types of people who are building platforms and are far more comfortable with. Um, the Western expression of of wealth. These things are really, really important. We need to understand our past as Africans to know where we are going. And we need to be very comfortable with our own cultural legacies. Not many people don't take that into account. We do. And I'm being incredibly basic when I say this. There are lots of different moving parts to how that's measured. So when it comes to wealth, what we often find is a family or groups of individuals be wealthy in their lifetime and not always able to bequeath that wealth liquid or otherwise to the next generation who will now have to start again because of the way in which they have leveraged their assets at the bank in order to generate the capital to run businesses where they traditionally would not have learned better ways to do things because they are the leader and maybe don't want to listen to the youth. So therefore change is very, very slow and change is not always celebrated in Francophone Africa, which tends to mimic some of the more French traditions around protecting incumbents and not always celebrating innovation. To celebrate innovation, you have to fail forward. How can you do that when a lot of your culture, especially the colonial aspects of it, says failure is bad? We're now in an interesting time of our growth as Africans where we now need to start building failure into our culture and that's a difficult thing to do. So with Ovamba's tools and philosophies and helping businesses to carefully fail forward or provide the capital around them to be able to experiment with expansion, we now have an opportunity to bequeath wealth to the next generation in a way that's more responsible versus we made money when we were alive, we're now dead, we've had a huge funeral, the next generation has to deal with the debt from the last generation, and we start the cycle over again. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think these are some really key considerations that most people in this space are missing right now in the impact investing space and development finance space even. And I think it's so important to bring light to all of these various aspects of people's lives really.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I'm really glad that I've had an opportunity to share that because as we said off of um, off Mike, there are some ways in which um, when we speak about the African continent and the human beings in it, there seems to be a narrative that many outsiders are comfortable adhere- adhering to. I'll give you an example. I was buying goods at a a well-known store in Maryland because I had to take these things to our corporate flat and to the office early when the business was growing. And the woman actually asked me, what are you buying all of this stuff for? And I said, well, it's for my office and our corporate flat in Cameroon. Oh, you have a business in Africa that's exciting. I can't wait to go there myself. I said, oh, that's good. What, What are your plans? Well, I can't wait to feed all of those starving babies right, what starving babies are you referring to? <laughs> well, you know, is suffering so greatly and I've been really looking forward to doing that. And I paused for a minute and I asked her, are you are going to be upset if I explain to you that there aren't really as many as you think? And Without even pausing. She said, yeah, because I've been really waiting a long time to do this. And that is, why are people so comfortable with that? Is what I thought about. And they are, because without the poverty war impacted Africa, people don't really know what to do next. And some people really don't want us to succeed, not because they're mean, but because this is what they've become used to. It really distorts their idea of how to feel good about themselves, helping the poor, if the poor are helping themselves. And a whole bunch of NGOs and charities suddenly become defunct and useless. What happens if Africa becomes so wealthy, fulfills its uh, potential, and feeds the rest of the world, and carefully, responsibly manages their own resources and minerals and exportations? That is a huge power shift that maybe nobody's prepared for. It could happen, I'd like to see it happen, but it's not in some people's best interest, especially from a colonial standpoint, which I am vehemently against.
0: Right, so it's like these colonial thinking patterns around how we see Africa are basically still heavily in place.
1: Very heavily in place, especially when it relates to uh, policy and governance and the fact that technology as a tool of democracy can set markets into motion in a way that most governments are too sluggish, and in this case, central banks are too sluggish to take advantage of and gain momentum. So when you listen to um, what we like to call mannels, panels full of men talking about um, banking and digital uh, banking, um, they're thinking about things like being access, having access to your bank online, being able to do transfers online, being able to do money, payments, wallets, and other kinds of carefully planned distribution of capital across a digital network. That's really great. That is helping to develop an ecosystem. But how much wealth are we developing for an individual with a money transfer? When you are using um, some of the smaller mom and pops as the example of how functional and successful this is. That's not the whole story. It's an important part of the story. It's not the whole part of the story. And banks are still hiring individuals who come from great universities, who are putting into place all of the academic learnings that are already a little bit outdated by the time they hit the big time at their desk in order to address banking for the middle class and the growing entrepreneurial space. That requires innovation. That requires testing. That's not academic.
0: Hmm. So you think banks basically need to be transformed, in a sense?
1: Yes, it really needs to be
0: transformed. And it needs to
1: make space for women who, because they are often involved in the business of business, can cross the divide into banking to bring a new perspective. There is space at the table for everybody.
0: I definitely agree with you. Um,
1: And I guess my last, sorry? I said I should hope so.
0: (laughs) Um, And my last question is really, what else do you think needs to be done to address the funding gap? Kind of moving away from just within the fintech space? Or what do you think broadly needs to be done?
1: I think that Western investors need to take off their current lens and really learn the new narrative and understand risk where Africa's concerned from a new new standpoint, that's the first thing. We also need to have more visible examples of success that they can see that this is not an anomaly and it's not just the one off. They need to broaden their perspective of what successful models look like. We need more ways in which to invest in the informal space in order to create a very healthy, robust, um, scalable opportunity under the banner of investing in, in Africa to close the funding gap we need more alternative mechanisms that are not just about giving money, but really about providing the capital into that space along more mature conduits for an ecosystem that is becoming far more reliable. So it's not, for us, we believe that, and this goes back to the beginning of our conversation, Providing capital is part of the story, maturing the ecosystem to safely develop the velocity for that capital to move quickly to where it is best required. So it's really about developing the market. Those are the things that I think will be required.
0: Perfect, I think that's a perfect note to end on. Um, So if people want to learn more about you or what Ovamba does, Where can they get more information?
1: www.ovamba.com. And they can also go to um, any, if they were to Google the World Economic Forum, where we've been uh, selected for the next two years, we will be global tech pioneers, helping to do exactly what you are doing here, Nika, for which I say big kudos to you, changing the narrative and helping the world understand technology can address some of the emerging markets we are one of only three other African uh, tech companies that have been selected to be at Davos to address these issues and to help to change the world using technology and some of our concepts and you'll find a lot of information about us well.
0: okay perfect thank you so much for joining me today
1: it was an absolute pleasure thank you
0: thank you Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the $7 Trillion Ideas to Save the World podcast. If you know someone who would love listening to this content, make sure to send it over to them so they too can learn about it. And together, let's change the world.